This is Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. Sustainable ecotourism has become an important aspect in luxury travel around the world and it is no more vibrant today than in South Africa. This week on Frontierland I speak to one of the pioneers of this movement here in the Eastern Cape. I had the privilege of interviewing Sarah Tompkins at Samara, her magnificent 70,000 acre private game reserve in the Great Karoo. Here she has made it her mission to transform former farmland into an area of true conservation, consisting of five biospheres and over 60 mammal species including Cape Mountain Zebra, Rhino, Buffalo, Lion and Cheetah. Furthermore, Sarah is working with local communities and stakeholders as well as national and international partners to create one of South Africa's largest protective areas that will one day, she hopes, witness again the natural migration of animals across this region. When you hear her speak, you will have every confidence she will achieve her goals. Enjoy. Sarah, what a delight it is for me to be back in the Karoo. It's a, it's a special place for me, um, given my, my writings about Mikey's Fontaine, but it's one of the first places I fell in love with South Africa because of the endless skies, the space. There's something about the light of the Karoo, but I'm at Samara, a place I've heard about um, during the course of my studies, ever since I've moved to the Eastern Cape, and it's wonderful to be here. And uh, you're an inspiration because you're a pioneer um, in what you, you've done here. But before we go any further, can you tell me um, your idea of conservation, what it means to you, that actual word, and, uh, and why it's so important? Well, conservation, I think, is probably one of the most important words on the planet today because we sit at a critical juncture. Um, so the preservation of biodiversity um, is something that is incredibly important for people on the planet, for the animals, for all of us. I mean, we, 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 live, we live on a planet, we're living at the moment, basically, where we're utilizing 1.6 planets and we only have one planet left. So conservation really, to me, is the preservation of what previously um, existed. Um, what we're talking about and what we're, what we're doing here at Samara is rewilding and recreating ecosystems um, and restoring um, degraded areas and also um, extirpated species, um, trying to bring it back to what it once was 300 years ago. So um, I think that conservation is a is a sort of it's a, a funny term and a, um, and one that we use as, as I would say as part of our vocabulary. Tell me a little bit about this journey, Samara. How did it come about? What was your inspiration? Uh, you've talked about the importance of conservation, but this has been a journey, hasn't it? I mean, we're now um, we're now sitting in this most wonderful place. Uh, we're in this Karoo Lodge. Uh, I can feel the history around me. The environment is absolutely beautiful, but I'm sure it didn't always look like this. So tell me, how, it, how did it come about? Well, for a start, um, I'm a South African. I was born in Joburg, and um, so I used to drive through the Karoo. And I remember as a child, we used to drive for miles and miles and miles. And at that stage, you know, all there were were a couple of bookies and um, not much else. And we didn't really value the Karoos, certainly as children. But as I um, uh, became an adult and got married and, and had children, the, um, and ha had always loved going down to the, the Kruger area of South Africa, 
um, we started to look for a property where we could have as a family home bring our children to um, when they were still quite small to help them recognize and value um, wildlife wild spaces grow up in nature because I think it, it totally and completely changes the dynamic of a human being when you spend time in nature so we wanted our children to do that and I think that you know it, it really has stood them in good stead but we had no idea what we were doing, absolutely none whatsoever. And um, it was simply by chance we met somebody sitting around a dinner table after a couple of good glasses of Cabernet Sauvignon, a man called James McNaughton, who's well known in the region. And um, he said, I've got a farm for sale. And he started to tell us the most incredible stories, these mystical tales of what existed in the Karoo, in the Eastern Cape, this Eastern Cape that, you know, everybody sort of had ignored, or certainly had ignored um, when I was growing up as a child, as a, as a big game and wildlife area. And um, he got us so excited that we drove up a couple of months later from, um, uh, we had a house on the coast, and I remember driving up and arriving in Grafrenet, and I said to my husband, if he thinks we're buying one square inch of land he can think again because I now remember the Karoo <laughs> it's absolutely dry dusty and, and uh, you know just uh, there's not much there <clears throat> however the next day was of azure blue skies beautiful Bougainvillea and Hrafrenet which is South Africa's fourth oldest town and we headed off and as we headed off the main road off the track um, we headed into these valleys these mountains these the splendor of, of the, the beauty we were just struck by um, by the by the majesty of the mountains by the vegetation that existed the rivers the it was the, the, the wildlife that occurred still here you know the kudus and dakers and steenbok and and tortoises and and uh, reptiles and we fell in love totally and completely so we just fell head over heels in love and all of my friends thought I had total rocks in my head and said how on earth can you buy land in the Karoo and now everybody queues up to come back. Amazing story um, you, you mentioned Kwafranet of course we're very close to that's probably your nearest town um, as a historian it fascinates me as you said one of South Africa's oldest towns and you were telling me earlier I mean people have farmed this area it's been used for agricultural use since the late 1700s yes and that but wasn't that one of your main challenges to actually change the use of the land and inadvertently or directly you've changed the appearance of the land and, and so you're making history many in many respects yourself now well, I suppose you could say that. Um, I think for many years we were regarded as interlopers and, and, and the pariahs of the region because we were coming and driving land use change, as you say. Um, it felt to us it was the right thing to do. We consulted scientists like Professor Graham Curley, um, Andre Boshoff, who is sadly no longer with us, Michael Knight, Angela Gaylard, some extraordinary human beings um, who um, advised us and, and helped us craft what we wanted to put together, which is a large enough area that could hold the big five basically and and reintroduce all of the species um, in some way that um, that previously occurred in this region um, 
It's not for the faint-hearted when you do that. There are an enormous number of challenges, obviously. Um, farmers didn't realise in 2003 when we wanted to bring the first cheetah back. Why on earth, they said, the cheetah have been absent from the landscape for 130 years. Why on earth would you want to bring a cheetah back? Um, when we brought back lion after 180 years, again, there was massive, massive resistance to this um, from all of our neighbours um, around, and one in particular um, who stopped us getting land for a good few years, um, held us up. Um, and as you will know, um, having land and having Big Five on the property and all of those historically occurred here um, is fantastic for tourism, which means, again, we can employ more people, um, more people come to the region. And that's very much you know, how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as, as the custodians of this land, but also as the um, the 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 voice, I suppose, or the 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 mouthpiece the, of of what can be done in a region um, that was in certain places devastated by small stock farming. No, no. What you what you've done is incredible. We can see the the results now around us. We spent the most wonderful evening last night and this morning on on a game drive. And for me, it was the landscape that really inspired me. The open space that often you don't you don't appreciate on on uh, on on game drives. But for me, I, I I can see that the 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 land is almost breathing again. It's coming back to life. And these incredible species that you've introduced. Um, I believe uh, Adrian Gardner of Shamwari was an inspiration to you in terms of how he led this kind of um, commercial aspect of, of wildlife tourism in the Eastern Cape and set the standards. And wasn't Adrian behind the decision to bring Lion here? He, well, absolutely. I mean, we could not have done what we've done at Samara without Adrian having done what he did at Chamwari. And he was an absolute inspiration because he was very brave. And in his own way, he had to pioneer bringing back, lion, in particular, lion um, back to um, the Eastern Cape. And um, and he, I, I remember he came to stay with us with Dr. Ian Player. And we had such a wonderful trip and uh, we would go out in the morning mornings, particularly with um, Ian, and listen to the, 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 the early morning calls of the beautiful birds, the Book Macquarie's and other wonderful um, birds that, uh, that, that we have here. And, um, and then we would sit around far in the evening, and Adrian just said to me, put them all back. <laughs> so he really was, uh, no, he was a, a huge inspiration. And again, um, Adrian um, is the, the, the person, not only did he pioneer the idea, but he also took it out to, as I mentioned to you, um, he went around the world seeing tour operators and travel agents and, you know, basically pounding the pavements, promoting the Eastern Cape as a destination. Uh, because prior to that, nobody had ever thought of it as a, as a wildlife area. And little did people realise, and little do they realise, that in fact, certainly this, this Karoo region of the Eastern Cape was one of the it had the massive springbok migrations and if you read some of the historical accounts they say that you couldn't see for the dust for two weeks when the migrations went through Hrafrenet. Um, the Cape Lion which sadly is now extinct um, was a massive lion that sort of put 
the fear of God into everybody that travelled on their wagons through this region in those uh, in those early days. Um, the quacha that is also sadly now extinct. And um, yes, yeah, so it's it's the the Eastern Cape is a, an area, as you know, of outstanding natural beauty. It has a variety. It's got the oceans. It's got the mountains. It's got the vast plains and, and semi-arid areas. And so it's 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 worthy of being on a, on the tourism map. No, without a doubt. Um, I'm a, certainly a convert. Uh, it's going to take a lot for me to leave the Eastern Cape. Uh, for me, it's one of the most special places in terms of its culture, its heritage, its history, but also, as you said, its, its nature in South Africa, if not the world, actually. Um, you mentioned, we've mentioned Adrian being a pioneer, but if I may say you're a pioneer as well. How has it been being a, a female in this world um, in terms of uh, conservation and leading what you've done here at Samara? It's a family effort, I know. I mean, your dear husband and your family are behind you but you really have led the way here and has has being a woman been an advantage or a disadvantage at times <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question <laughs> and one that um I can answer in in two ways. Sometimes it's an advantage being a woman um, because you know you can use charm to um, to to influence certain things. Um, but it's also been very difficult because don't forget this is very much the domain of men, and um, and in particular um, in this region. Um, I have to be careful what I say, but <laughs> um, women women were meant to have their their place and really not put their heads above the parapet and be counted. But um, I'm afraid I'm I you know I, I my middle name is Perseverance I think and uh, <laughs> I don't take her no for an answer. So. Um, I'm just one of those people on the planet that always sees the glass half full and I, I realize how as a woman um, th how difficult it is sometimes to get your your point of view across so what we try and do at Samara as well is promote women make sure that women have um, feel celebrated and cherished in this environment and we have a very strong force of, of women here in the tourism industry um, and and they are the face of Samara, along with uh, along with our wonderful men too. But um, it's uh, yeah, it, it hasn't always been easy. Well, that comes across the welcome you receive here, but it's authentic. And you, I know you engage with the local communities um, in terms of your employees and what you do. You've got an incredible outreach program as well, and we'll talk a little bit about that if I may. But going back to yourself. Um, we over over dinner last night. We, I was absolutely enamoured and intrigued by your by your um, your upbringing and your parents in particular, both with incredible mm. stories, both amazing people in their own right. Can you just tell me a little bit about them and uh, and how they influenced you? Yes. Yeah, so they were both extraordinary people. My father is still alive. He's 92. He was born in Idutwa in the Transkei and um, into a very humble family and didn't have the money but had a huge amount of talent. Uh, didn't have the money to go to university but he had an enormous uh, amount of talent, particularly in the sporting arena. So 
he actually peeled potatoes to get to Wimbledon and um, he was uh, something of a celebrity when he arrived there and um, he played on that circuit in the days when they were simply amateurs and he was he became very successful as a, as a sportsman and was a springbok tennis player but he realized that he would never be number one in the world so he turned his attention to promoting sport and his tournament at Ellis Park in Johannesburg was um, after Wimbledon, the second he had the second highest attendance in the world, which is quite extraordinary. So he was a bit of a marketing guru. He also did things like bring um, very famous film stars to South Africa. He created some a ladies' day and boxes and hospitality tents. And he also to um, he uh, both of my parents were um, hugely involved in the. Um, in the, the first initial stages of the of the Progressive Federal Party in South Africa, um, and worked for Helen Sussman, and so we were deeply involved in politics. And my parents absolutely loathed the regime that existed then. And so Dad had um, he ignored um, the laws of the day, and he had interracial stands. He had mixed race stands, and um, he just said, "This is you know, this is uh, we're living in a country with with this terrible inequity," and. Um, so he also brought Arthur Ashe to South Africa, who was again just a, um, such a gentleman, amazing human being. Um, and my mother was um, from a sort of very patrician family um, who had grown up in um, KwaZulu Natal, and they'd actually founded the town of Richmond. And my great grandfather was a um, and great great grandfather were in the timber industry and then moved into um, up to Johannesburg and with the sort of signs of the original days in Johannesburg and um, sort of very privileged in a way and lived in beautiful houses in Westcliff and then my grandfather was a Rhodes Scholar and went um, uh, went was at Oxford when the First World War broke out um, and fought in the Royal Berkshires and got an MC in bar uh, and then taught at Harrow and uh, the um, the Dragon School came back to South Africa and his he was an only child and his grandfather bought for him a um, um, 60 acres of Westcliff which has become um, and he, he created something called the Ridge Preparatory School, which is still in existence today. And basically he gave that land to the school in perpetuity. So I think from sort of my mother's side, you know, that's I had that type of upbringing. And in a way, uh, both of my parents influenced different parts of my character. My father, in a way, I suppose, the sort of the go-getting <laughs> marketing side and my mother, this deep... Um, uh, need to sort of give something back and to do things for communities. I mean, my mother created something called the South African Music Education Trust, and um, she felt that in order to heal divides in in this in the post-apartheid, uh, just you know after '94, um, it was very important to take police brass bands into Mamelodi and other townships just north of of Pretoria, um, so that she could try and help heal the wounds of apartheid and use music in order to do so. Um, she also created something called Violence for Africa and Yehudi Menuhin was one of her patrons. So I've got, yes, I suppose I really am the product of, of two lovely, really good people. And um, I, I, yes, both my parents, I, my mother's sadly no longer around, but um, I held them in, in high regard. 
and I'm sure they both would hold you in high regard for what you've achieved here because um, they've left a legacy, they impacted people and you've certainly done that. And you mentioned community, can you just um, um, explain to us a little bit what you do in in terms of engaging with the community because it's all about um, your conservation is not purely for our natural world, it's also for well the natural world including human beings of course but the communities are so important to you. Hugely important. For us, in fact, the eradication of poverty is forms the baseline of everything that we do here because we will not be able to protect these landscapes into for the millennia without having people as uh, really profiting as part of that um, endeavor. Um, people have to feel that they are um, not just part of it, um, there's, a, uh, there's an education process that has to take place too and, and we, we firmly believe um, in upskilling and, um, um, uh, sorry I'm just going to, I've, I've lost my train of thought, I just want to say something else that um, we, in, with, with, um, with the communities that we work with, um, for us it is, it's very much it's a very inclusive feeling. It's yeah. it's something. It, it's a very deep-rooted feeling of we we could not yeah. do what we want to do without having massive community involvement, without having community buy-in. And it's not a case of somebody said to me the other day. It's not a case of like taking a suite and throwing it across a fence. Um, you know, it actually is. It's 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 total and complete buy-in. How do we? How do we leverage um, off um, creating and empowering local communities to profit in landscapes going forward? Because that's the only way that we're going to protect them. Indeed. Um, you're involved with uh, some amazing initiatives you explained to me, uh, one called The Long Run, which I think is a, is a wonderful name for what you're trying to achieve, where you bring uh, groups of, of like-minded people, world experts, you all pool your talents yes. to have this vision. Um, what, is, what is your particular vision for this part of South Africa? I understand that there is this, there is this um, movement to rewild not only this area that we're sitting in of the crew, but actually to link it to other reserves and other, other properties that are currently privately owned for the greater good of, of, of the planet. But can you, can you um, elaborate on what you're trying to do? We and this is by no means our idea. This is um, we, we we can't claim um, any form of ownership. It is an idea that was driven by um, scientists that we've met and and conservationists that we've met over the years, um, who recognised this huge need um, to um, um, mitigate against an extinction debt, and in order to do so you have to put together vast tracts of land. Now this region is really unusual. Um, between Hrafrenet, the, the, the Kamdebuer National Park, Craddock, which has the Mountain Zebra National Park, and around Kabecha, which has the Addo Elephant National Park, um, you've got almost four million acres of land. And our dream, and, and at this point it's, you know, it's still very much a dream, but would be to try and create enough space for not only wildlife to thrive in areas without fences, but also for communities in all of that surrounding area, in those surrounding areas to thrive as well. 
Well, given what you've achieved here, I won't put that upon uh, beyond you. There's no doubt uh, that that is achievable, and uh, you, you and your colleagues are the right people to drive this. As a, as a conservationist, as a humanist, you, I can see you, you are a, a glass half full person. You are positive, despite all the challenges we've got. We will be okay going forward. Do you believe? I, you have to have hope. I believe that life without hope is 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 so full of despair. It's it's almost, you know, you, I can't, I wouldn't, you know, be able to contemplate what it would be like. I do believe that we need to change our buying patterns and habits. I do believe I'm appalled at the amount of plastic um, that 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 we all use. Um, I, as being members of the long run, we subscribe to um, the, what we call the four C's, um, which is culture, commerce community and conservation and they've helped us develop um, a five and ten year plan as to how we will meet our set of objectives um, that have been um, decided upon with the with um, uh, the, the the people who actually work for the long run who are some pretty extraordinary people and it's a wonderful community um, but I just think yes I think um, how many handbags do we need? You know, how many pairs of shoes do we need? Um, if all of us just were, were able to recycle in some way, particularly plastic, um, and send it to um, an environment where um, the, there's some amazing initiatives. There's a lady in Crafrenet who turns it into handbags and and uh, little purses, and um, another um, initiative I've heard of in Cape Town that turn it into bricks for the building industry. So I think all of us just have to look at our own environment and say whether it's one metre or one acre at a time, we all have a sphere of influence and we have a duty to do something about the planet. I, I certainly agree. Frontier Land is all about hope, it's all about positivity, it's all about sharing special human stories. And if I may say so, Sarah, your story is very special and I think we'll warrant a few more episodes looking, even if it's looking at the careers of your, your, your parents, but I'd love, I'd love to come back and, uh, and I believe that in five years time you will have met a lot of those objectives that you've set yourself. But can I just say all strength to you and what you do and your family. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure having you up here. And I would just like to say too, is that on the planet today, um, and it's always been like this, collaboration is key. We cannot do things without other people. And I think that will be the key to our success going forward. Here, here. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. That was Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. For more podcasts, visit algoafm.co.za.